Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I'm here with Kate Moore, the author of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA bestseller, Radium Girls, and whose most recent book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, The Shocking Story of a Woman Who Dared to Fight Back, was released in paperback on February 22nd, 2022 by Sourcebooks. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to talk about this book. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to talk to you. I, well, I'm I'm really excited. Elizabeth Packard is a, a figure that I learned anything about in the past. How did you come to find her story and what moved you to want to share it? So my coming to her story was a bit of a topsy-turvy one um, because I was inspired by the theme of the book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, before I found Elizabeth's personal story. So I was inspired to write the book because of the Me Too movement in 2017. And I found that movement inspirational because it wasn't just that women were speaking up. It was the way that finally we were being listened to and believed. And it got me thinking, why hasn't that happened before? And how have women been silenced in the past? And as I was mulling over these things, I sort of had this realisation that for centuries, whenever women have used our voices, we've been called crazy and I decided that's what I wanted to write about, the historical silencing of women through using our mental health as a weapon against us. And so I then went looking for one woman in history whose story encapsulated that theme and that would allow me to explore that topic. But through the very specific prism of her story and taking readers on a journey through one woman's experience, which I hope women will see themselves in because actually Elizabeth's experience is so universal, even though it's specific to her. So I basically fell down a rabbit warren of internet research about women and lunacy. And I first found her name in a University of Wisconsin essay that I randomly found online, just a single paragraph made reference to her. The internet is like a, an amazing creature. <laughs> Sometimes. It's a total goldmine. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's, and it's so, like, so your friend as, a, as an author. I can't imagine doing the job that I do before the internet existed. And thanks to that little reference in a paragraph, I started looking into her more deeply. And as soon as I realized she had left a treasure trove of her own writings behind, 
I knew she was the one because her story is incredibly dramatic. But more importantly, she had left her own record in her own words behind. And I really wanted that intimate, personal account so that I was hoping to bring Elizabeth's voice, you know, back to the forefront. And thanks to her own literary efforts, I've been able to do that in The Woman They Could Not Silence. The the title is actually so apt because she truly was the woman they could not silence because here we are 160 years after her story and she's speaking to readers through the book. It was really phenomenal reading about all of the ways she was so creative about preserving her writing in an environment where it was very much at risk to be taken away. You know, she was um, ingenious in preserving that and finding ways to to keep that and to collect that and and to even even to to write it in in a place where she was not given access to materials to do so. Absolutely, because as I say, you know, Elizabeth encapsulated the theme because she herself, though sane, was dispatched to an insane asylum by her husband in 1860s Illinois, simply because she disagreed with him and therefore he sent her away, which husbands could do at that time. That was the legal situation. What I think is really interesting and important about, as you say, the way she prioritised, you know, preserving her writings. She wrote My Book Is Me because you wrote a book in the asylum. My Book Is Me. And I think she truly saw her identity in those writings and to, to lose them would have been to lose herself. So when preserving them and preserving her voice, preserving the record that she had made, you know, that this this sort of physical evidence that she did exist, even though in the asylum, the doctors and her husband are trying everything they can do to squish her out, you know, even out of very existence. But here she is, she's written, she has a scrap of paper with her thoughts on it. That was just so important to her. And I think it is why she fought so hard to retain her writings and to keep her voice alive and allowed. Yeah, there, I'm, as you said, there is a, a treasure trove of material to draw from. How did you mm. choose what to include and, and what you had to exclude? Um, I mean, that's that's always such a difficult task um, when you're writing a history book, because there is often you know so much material. For me, I really tried to prioritize the material that drove the story forward. Um, I hope the woman they could not silence is a pacey, story driven book. Um, with both my books, The Radium Girls and The Woman They Could Not Silence, even though they're history books and everything in them is factual, they are written almost as novels. So, you know, page turning, uh, hopefully pace, chapter endings with cliffhangers and so on and so forth. So in choosing the material, it was to try to keep the story streamlined and to keep Elizabeth's voice and heart and personality at the forefront of that so that readers could walk in step with her on her journey. Yeah. Uh, Was there anything that you, and I'm asking you questions that uh, you answer in some part in the end of the book, but um, Mm. is there anything that you um, had to exclude that you had to leave out that you really wish was just a part of that, that you just maybe couldn't find a place to put it or um, it didn't make sense to include it? Well, I did cut a lot of material from my first draft. Um, the answer that immediately springs to mind to that question is the original part one, which I had written, you know, a whole entire part to the book that is no longer there. And that part was conceived almost as a sort of Arthur Miller crucible-esque witch hunt. You know, it starts with 
Elizabeth before she's sent to the asylum and showcases how the community turned against her at her husband's word. And I sort of wanted that sort of creeping horror of her, you know, her community turning against her and the noose tightening about her necks before she's even sent away to the asylum. Now, unfortunately, because of the limitations of space and the need, as I say, to, to keep it this sort of pacey driving story, all of that went. Um, so we open, you know, on June 18th, 1860, which is the day Elizabeth is sent to the asylum. Um, so, yeah, all of that material went. Um, I can also think off the top of my head of, you know, small medical history things that I found in the research. So women and water treatment, for example, was something that I learned about but couldn't really put into the book so I remember reading that a woman was once sort of hosed down by about 15 tons of water because she refused to sleep with her husband and that was a sort of standard treatment um so things like that I didn't have space to include um but they were very much part of my research into this medical history and the shocking misogyny that is involved in psychiatric history yeah, you do nod to it in in a lot of different places. So it, it's nice because you do still get the feeling of that. You know, when the book starts, like you do get the feeling of like an anticipatory claustrophobia almost, hmm. you know, where she knows something's coming. She isn't really sure what's going to happen. You know, she has some faith that it's going to be okay, but already she's like on alert, you know, and like mm-hmm. the reader can get that. I think in the, in the way that you wrote it anyway, I, I got that. And, um, and I'm sure it would have been amazing to see all of the events <laughs> that led up to it. Uh, but I yeah. understand the word count, you know, <laughs> and the page count, like you. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that I had to do so many drafts of the opening. So it's really good to know that the quality uh, that I wanted to include in the part that got cut was still there. So thank you. Yeah. And it was uh, shocking to you know, some of the materials you included, like the list of different things that could um, cause a woman to be sent to an insane mm. asylum was um I mean, one of them I remember was change of life. And I just, yes. thought, oh my gosh, how horrifying. I just being, just being a woman was enough. No yeah, other. It, it, it was, you know, the, the change of life is one thing, basically anything to do with a woman's menstrual cycles, um, you know, was reason for commitment in the 19th century, largely simply because, you know, the male doctors didn't understand female bodies and they attributed, you know, female hormones and female, natural female physical Um, processes um, to insanity and to a woman going mad Um, you know so much so that doctors actually encouraged mothers to try to delay the onset of their daughter's periods because the theory ran that as soon as a woman was menstruating then she was liable uh, to lose her mind basically. Wow yeah I mean in some ways that hasn't changed that much I mean people still you know as you mentioned earlier there's still a lot of um, pejoratives that are lobbed against women and uh you know a great proportion of people an unfortunate proportion of people feel that women aren't fit to hold office because they might go you know wild when they absolutely or yeah 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 and and that was part of my reason for wanting to to write the book to sort of highlight how even though I'm writing about a story that's 160 years old so many of the themes that I'm writing about are still relevant today and, and actually the book concludes with a postscript looking at very recent events of, of as you say public female figures being knocked down being accused of you know being sick in the head um, simply because they're speaking up and speaking against some of these men in power 
Um, and, you know, that happens on the public stage. But I know certainly from the readers emails that I've received since the book came out as well, that it's happening privately as well behind closed doors between husbands and wives uh, in workplaces. You know, there are just so many examples uh, where this is still happening. It does feel very contemporary in um, and and there are ways you could see this on, you know, on the macro level and the micro level. Is there, mm. what do you think it would take to, to shift that, to change that? Well, um, I'm I asking mean, you an impossible question. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is a society wide issue, isn't it really? Um, I mean, I think the more, the in some ways, the more visible women are, you know, we prove ourselves um, that we're not, crazy um so i think that's good you know more visibility for women better understanding um from men to support women in those endeavors so they're not cutting us down they're lifting us up i think all of that kind of thing helps basically to try to combat it um you know it's such an easy slur actually to hurl at anyone either that you don't understand or you disagree with you know you're crazy it's such a dismissive thing you're not even trying to engage with the argument that someone's making so I think actually listening to each other as well is an important step, you know, on both sides of the argument in in some ways, because I know I've been guilty of saying, oh, they're crazy, you know, but actually it's important to listen and and under- try to understand where the other person's coming from. You know, that's that's an important part of just diplomacy and humanity, I think. Yeah. And something that uh, seems a little less in supply than it needs to be right now. Mm hmm. You made a lot of parallels in the book to the American Civil War, which was being waged at the same time. Why did you feel it was important to connect Elizabeth's struggle to the fight against enslavement of Black Americans? Um, well, she herself would draw parallels with it. Um, she herself was a political person. And, and actually, she was. it was really hard for her at such an um, important moment in her country's history to be locked up in the asylum without access um, to the newspapers without the knowledge of, of what was going on um, but I think ultimately she recognized oppression you know she was uh, pro-abolition uh, even before she went into the asylum but she recognized oppression she wanted equality you know justice for all um, so she did identify with the, the struggle in a way um, because legally uh wives at that time were subjugated they had no legal identity themselves no right to property custody of their children um you know no right to their liberty as i say her husband had the legal right to send her away to an asylum uh specifically without the evidence of insanity that was required in other cases and so i think she identified with the struggle yeah and and you i i believe if i'm remembering correctly you mentioned that her um pro-abolition sentiment was was part of what landed her in the asylum in the first place. That, that's right. And actually, that's um, some of the digging I did uh, for the book sort of revealed this. It, it wasn't something that I sort of read in any of my other research it was doing, sort of following the money, really, because I found some church records of her husband's church. Her husband was a preacher. And it said they'd just had this new church built and um, a very rich man called Cyrus McCormick had donated, you know, pretty much half the money to build the church. Um, And sort of digging into why he had done that, Cyrus McCormick didn't want there to be a civil war. So he was he wasn't exactly anti-abolition, but he didn't want there to be pro-abolition pastors because he thought if there was abolition, that that would cause the civil war. 
So he, through his sort of, you know, donating to certain churches, withdrawing support from others, managed to get his message of sort of pastors who were pro-abolition sacked and other people installed in place. So Theophilus, Elizabeth's husband, actually personally was pro-abolition, but he was too scared uh, of losing his job to speak out against this directive. So he switches creeds um, and the creed that he switches to is on the fence about abolition and they don't preach um, for the abolition of slavery at all. And Elizabeth is vocal in the fact that she thinks abolition should take place. And this embarrasses her husband and worries him in case McCormick, you know, this wealthy donor gets wind of it. Um, And so, yes, that's part of why she's sent away to the asylum, because Theophilus doesn't want her to cause trouble for his work. Um, And she's embarrassing him by, you know, banging the drum and talking at dinner parties about it, for example. Yeah. And she was um, very erudite. She just blew people away anytime she was speaking. You know, and, and I was sort of struck by this idea that the more you try to prove that you're sane, the, the more you look like you are unwell. Uh, yes. But it seemed like for Elizabeth, she didn't fall into that paradigm. You know, she tried everything she could to avoid it. And she was very conscious of it. You know, the fact that if she, you know, is they're trying to take her away to the asylum, if she fights, if she screams, if she shouts, as you say, it will make her look more mad than if she does as she, you know, if she does as she did, which was to be calm, to um, she sort of registers her opposition to what is happening, but she doesn't scream and shout. She says they'll have to carry her because she's not going to walk there. And she sort of shows her, you know, her, her horror about what's happening, but she shows it in a very calm way, in a way that can't be used against her. And as I say, she doesn't participate in what's happening to her she keeps her body stiff and unyielding and they have to literally physically pick her up and move her um because she won't be a party to what's happening but she's not going to make a scene um for want of a better word and and she does that very consciously because she doesn't want to give her husband any more ammunition than he already has as a woman who has dared to contradict her husband at dinner parties and so on which in the 19th century was evidence enough of a woman being mad you know an assertive woman an educated woman these were actually things that counted against her when it came to assessing her state of mind in the 19th century yeah and as you say in the book um this is not a this is not necessarily a book about mental health issues you know this is a book about um strength and about and about feminism and about power i I think that's Mm. the key thing because for me when people, you know, dig out that old slur about you're crazy, it's about power. They're trying to silence you. They're trying to dismiss what you have to say. And, you know, historically, that has been used so many times, you know, against the suffragettes, against the civil rights activists in the 1960s. Um, that slur of crazy, of needing psychiatric treatment, of needing to be institutionalized, you know, literally taken out of society and locked up to essentially avert the danger that the powers that be perceive that these people will be so for me it's very much about power and as you say it's not really about mental health at all it's about wielding power and trying to fight back against it Mm -hmm. and she still um she still did try to make changes in the mental health system um in in as much as she was able to do so um and she did but she was so moved by what she experienced in the asylum because yes she arrives on a, a ward where largely all the other patients are saying they've 
simply also been institutionalised by controlling male family members. But as her time in the asylum evolves, she actually also meets people who are genuinely mentally ill and sees that they're oppressed by the system. They're not helped by it. And so she determines to do everything in her power to try to make things better for these people as well. These people who are genuinely mentally ill and try to improve their lot and how they're treated. Yeah, her evident concern for them was really touching, you know, um, and her desire to help them, you know, even just have basic hygiene, which was denied to Mm. them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, we're we're about out of time, but I wanted to wrap up with um, a question. Uh, Mm. What sort of lessons do you think we could take from Elizabeth's story? I hope the major takeaway lesson is that you can surprise yourself by the strength inside yourself. And for me, the overwhelming part of this story and, and really the story at its heart is of a woman finding her voice and refusing to be silenced. And I think the way Elizabeth does that, you know, moving from a housewife who has never, you know, spoken publicly, she's never written, and actually she moves through the book, you know, from this woman who is oppressed to someone who does dare to speak out and she does make a difference in the world through her writings, through her speeches, um, through being this strong, undefeated woman. And I hope that journey that she goes through, that journey of finding herself is one that people can recognise themselves in as well and be inspired by. Um, Elizabeth wrote, I will not set my light under a bushel. Um, I will set it upon a candlestick that it may give light to others. And I hope if people read the woman they could not silence, they'll find the strength inside themselves to not be silenced too. Thank you so much. This is thank you for for sharing your time with us. Thank you for sharing this um, subject with us. Uh, it was an absolute treat. Would uh, Would you like to share where folks can find you online? Sure. Um, I have a website, so uh, you can visit www.kate-more.com, and I'm also on Twitter at Kate Books. Wonderful. And uh, this is again wonderful discussion with Kate Moore. The author of Radium Girls, and most recently, The Woman They Could Not Silence, The Shocking Story of a Woman Who Dared to Fight Back, which was just released in February in paperback by Sourcebooks. And my name is Marikita Guerrero. You can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Until next time, folks, thanks so much for joining us. It's back, y'all. The FBC Readathon is back for its third season, and honestly, it's better than ever. We've got tons of surprises in store for you. Join us the weekend of April 22nd through 24th for a low-stakes, high-reward readathon, the perfect excuse to set aside a few hours to power through your TBR. It's completely free, a ton of fun, and we have over 80 books and counting that we'll be giving away. All you got to do is sign up at feministbookclub.com slash readathon, and the link is in the show notes. Hello again, friends. I'm Marikita Guerrera, and I wanted to take a moment to do a follow-up review of The Woman They Could Not Silence, the shocking story of a woman who dared to fight back. During my interview with author Kate Moore, 
We discussed a lot about how and why Moore found Elizabeth Packard and the process for writing the book, but we did not talk substantially about the narrative thread, the timeline, and the details of the book uh, or its main character. This was not unintentional. Uh, Elizabeth isn't a well-known figure any longer, but she had such an impact. It felt important to dive into that with the person who put in so much love and work in uncovering and sifting through all of those documents. It really must have been a tremendous undertaking, and we owe a debt of gratitude to Moore for bringing back such a powerful and impactful person in women's history. Moore's book begins in June 1860, on the morning that Elizabeth Packard is forcibly removed from her home, where she has been wrongfully imprisoned by her husband, separated from her children, and then made made to board a train bound for an asylum. I'm using the vocabulary of the time, as did Moore, because this was not a mental health facility. This was not a place where individuals who are struggling to uh, struggling with mental health issues go to receive treatment and to become well. This was a place to warehouse people that society deemed unfit to remain among it. Elizabeth's only indicating characteristic of insanity was her embrace of the burgeoning women's rights movement. Moore quotes Elizabeth's husband, Theophilus, as saying, My wife was unfavorably affected by the tone of society, and zealously espoused almost all new notions and wild vagaries that came along. For a preacher who strongly believed that women's duty was to obey their husband, this was enough to create conflict and concern. When Elizabeth would not set aside her newfound independence, he rallied his congregation and the townspeople against her, declared her insane, and chaperoned her on her journey to the Illinois State Hospital at Jacksonville. She remained there until June 1863. Initially, Elizabeth was kept on a ward with other women in similar situations as herself. They had been placed there by their husbands, and they were not seemingly afflicted by any mental health issues. Uh, they were of equivalent social standing and race. She was allowed certain freedoms, the ability to roam the grounds, for instance, and given keys to various wings because she was seen as a model patient. It seems Elizabeth was not good at placating men with power, however, and you know what? I feel a real affinity for that. <laughs> and her outspoken views and unwavering convictions quickly marked her out as meddlesome. Throughout her stay at Jacksonville, Elizabeth was continually moved to wards with worse and worse conditions, whose patients were suffering greater and greater indignities, and even extreme violence at the hands of the attendants, who were very often not um, not well-qualified for any of those positions, they were just available to fill those roles. Elizabeth became very clever at finding ways to take notes and hide those notes, so that once she was released, she had a comprehensive record of the cruelty and injustice occurring at Jacksonville, and in all likelihood at all asylums across the United States. It was from this record that she was able to lobby for reform of a system that would incarcerate women without trial and would then leave them to be brutalized mentally and physically. And from these notes that she was able to um, create pamphlets and um, books about the about her history there. Moore's book is over 500 pages long, with the story, glossary, supporting sources and notes, index, and author interview, so I'm compressing the narrative considerably. In fact, though regaining her children was a driving force for Elizabeth, she dedicated herself to lobbying for reform and did not have them in her custody again until 1869, 
six years after she was released from Jacksonville. And I'm alighting past all of that. This review would be another 20 minutes long if I went into all of the challenges Elizabeth faced, which were myriad. Really, you should pick up the book if you'd like to know more. I don't mean to scare you off by telling you how considerable it is. The auxiliary information comprises over 50 pages, but only to indicate just how much work went into shedding light on this piece of history. But because so much work went into it, I will confess that I am disappointed by the lack of nuance given to Elizabeth by Moore. Perhaps the omission was intentional. Some of Elizabeth's opinions seem to portray her in a bad light, but some of the pieces that were kept in are a bit disheartening. (laughs) Elizabeth makes frequent parallels between the emancipation of enslaved people and the incarceration of women in asylums, which parallels, it seems, more uncritically supports. Moore quotes Elizabeth as saying, If you continue to let our husbands oppress us, she appealed to Lincoln directly in her book, and free the black slaves as you seem determined to do, I shall call you partial in your element of justice. We women do want equal rights, at least with a colored man. And later, Moore herself writes, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, and over three million of the nation's four million slaves were immediately freed. In the asylum, there was no such salvation. And in yet another portion of the book, uh, Moore says, Ironically, almost concurrent with Elizabeth being confined in this ever-tightening cage, Abraham Lincoln delivered the famous Gettysburg Address. This nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, the president promised his country. But, But Elizabeth's freedom had never seemed further away than at that time. I'm not going to pick out each example of this false equivalency, but there were many cases of it. Elizabeth Packard was an outspoken abolitionist, and so her mind may have been fixated on the cause of freedom for enslaved peoples, but she was also a white feminist in the mid to the late 1800s, and like many white feminists that came to power alongside her and in her wake, she had some truly problematic views on the humanity, the intelligence, the autonomy of black people. To leave this out feels revisionist to me, and to continue to equate The fight Elizabeth waged, a worthy fight, to be sure, with that of slavery, feels tone deaf. Elizabeth can still be a hero, even if flawed, but her flaws should also be noted. To skip past them flattens her, idolizes her, removes her from her own dynamism that each human possesses. It would be remarkable, in fact, if someone of her era did not have regressive views on racial equality. That doesn't make it okay. That's not an excuse. It's a request to see the full picture. Her brand of feminism, too, is one that still abounds today, specifically among white women. It's not intersectional. It's not holistic. If we don't see where we came from, if we can't acknowledge that, how will we ever find our way to growth? And I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I will say this. It is so very invalidating to compare generations-long displacement, enslavement, and brutalization of an entire race of people to the disappearance of women into asylums, no matter how violent those asylums were or how unjust the incarceration. Overall, this is a book that fills a real gap in our history. It brings attention to a problem that is still very much contemporary, the discrediting of women and their views by labeling them as mentally ill, and further stigmatizes mental illness by tacitly declaring that those afflicted by mental health issues are not capable of full and real thought 
of having well-considered and insightful opinions. Moore was able to illuminate horrifying practices and important details, things that should not be forgotten, that have been forgotten. But it's also a book about white people, about white women, about white women's struggles specifically. And it is about their struggles at a time that Black women were making enormous sacrifice in extremely precarious and dangerous situations. That it is about white women is not a problem per se, but it is a problem that the other angles of Elizabeth's views were not explored or acknowledged. In the author interview in the back of the book, Moore regrets that she was not able to include facts and information about how Black women encountered even more severe prejudice, institutionalization, and brutality, including but not limited to forced sterilization, which is not, I grieve to report, in our past. Moore reports that this was included in her first draft. I wish we had seen that version of this book. It would have brought so much necessary depth. Well, friends, thank you again for joining me again. We will have a link to this book and to Kate Moore's other book, Radium Girls, in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. I think we do need to illuminate this dark corner of our history. If you're looking for me online, you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Until next time, be well. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a thing.